Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of the colleagues from the London School of Economics and the German Historical Institute, I would like to welcome you very warmly to the inaugural lecture of Professor Dorothy Wehrling, our new Gerda Henkel visiting professor. This is a joint professorship which the Gerda Henkel Foundation funds at the London School of Economics and uh, the German Historical Institute. And it's the fifth time that we can welcome a new Gerda Henkel visiting professor, and for this we are really greatly indebted to the Gerda Henkel Foundation, which is represented here this evening by Dr. Angela Kühn. A very warm welcome to you. And please do pass our gratitude for this generous funding to the governing bodies of the foundation. Perhaps I can mention very briefly for our British audience that the Geta Henkel Foundation is quite unique in the sense that it concentrates all its considerable funding to support academic research in the humanities, in particular in the subject of archaeology, history, historic Islamic studies, art history, history of law, and uh, pre- or proto-history. And the Henkel Foundation was founded by Lisa Maskell to commemorate her mother, Gerda Henkel. And the foundation is a really wonderful asset to the humanities in Germany and also internationally. As we can see in our case, it funds not only within Germany but also outside. So, again, many thanks for coming and the generous funding. Let me now come to the main person of this evening. Welcome, Professor Dorothy Wehrling. Dorothy Wehrling holds a professorship in modern history at Hamburg University and is also deputy director of the Forschungsstelle für Zeitgeschichte in Hamburg, an independent research institute for contemporary history funded by the uh, Senate of, the, uh, of Hamburg. Before coming to Hamburg, Dorothy Wehrling taught modern German and European history in the United States at the University of Washington, uh, Seattle, and um, at Amherst, and after that uh, at the University of Erfurt in Germany. Dorothy Wehrling rece received her doctorate in 1986 in Essen, where she was supervised by Lutz Niethammer, and it dealt with the lives and experiences of female servants in Germany at the turn of the 19th century. It is in some ways the counterpart, perhaps, to research undertaken in Britain recently by Carolyn Steedman, who also works on sermon female servants. And it has, of course, this type of research has its root in Germany, at least in the, in the history workshop movement of the 1980s, in the emerging fields of gender history and the history of everyday life. This type of uh, strand of research, uh, Dorothy Wehrling continued after her PhD by taking part in a quite remarkable research project led by uh, Lutz Niethammer. Together with him and uh, Alexander von Plato, Dorothy Wehrling was able to conduct an oral history project in the former GDR in 1987. That means two years before the wall came down. This project resulted in uh, several publications, among others, a volume, Volkseigene Erfahrung, The People's Experience and Archaeology of Life, 
in the industrial provinces of the GDR. And building on this research, Dorothy Wheeling also dedicated her second major book, The Habilitation, and recording and analyzing life histories in what in the meantime had become the former GDR. The book was published in 2002 under the title Born in Year One, the birth cohort of 1949 in the GDR a Collective Biography. That's my translation. I don't know. It's a fairly free translation. <laughs> Um, these two volumes presented us with new insights into the ways people led their lives in the former GDR, how they accommodated the regime, and also why the regime finally fell apart. At uh, the Hamburger Institute, uh, Dorothy Wehrling recently completed two major projects. I'm not going through the whole publication list. I've just picked out a few things so that you... Um, see where the sort of background uh, of her widespread research is. Both publications came out just very recently, a few weeks ago, one very recently, and one was an interdisciplinary and collaborative project on the, on the bombing of Hamburg. The book title is Witnesses of the Hamburg Firestorms and Their Families, an interdisciplinary research project. There was an interdisciplinary research project on the transgenerational passing on of traumatic war experiences. And the other project was the analysis of uh, extraordinary family correspondence during the First World War. It just appeared under the title A Family During the War, living, dying, writing during the years 1914 to 1918. Both projects were also <coughs> supported by the Henkel Foundation and the second project will also be the, um, uh, the war correspondence will also be the topic for a conference uh, which Dorothy Willing is planning here at the Institute in the next year. <coughs> now, this brings us now back to her latest, uh, latest project, the project she's, and the research she's actually going to conduct while she is here at London, and a project that has also occupied her for some time already, and which she intends to bring forward, or perhaps even conclude, while she is here in London. That's the title you see here. It's on the coffee world. It has a local uh, focus uh, on Germany, North Germany, but it's the linking of regional global aspects of a topic around coffee. We are very excited here at the Institute to be able to see this project growing over the next year, and we are very pleased that you now will give us some first insight into, into your ideas and the way you're going to treat that complex and very fascinating topic. So, Dorothy, welcome to London, welcome to the German Historical Institute, and over to you now. We are really looking forward to your lecture. And perhaps I can just very briefly say there are 15 minutes of question and answers afterwards, uh, and then you're all invited to a drink next door in the library. So, but over to you now. Um, dear Angela Kühnen, dear Andreas Gestrich, dear Nigel Ashton, uh, dear colleagues and friends, 
Good evening, and thank you very much for your kind introduction, Andreas. Now, some things come as a perfect gift at a perfect time, and this is certainly the case for the offer of this guest professorship by the Gerda Henkel Foundation, the London School of Economics, and the German Historical Institute. And in more than one way, London is also the perfect place to work on and hopefully finish a manuscript on the German overseas coffee trade in the 20th century. Besides it being the financial center for global trade, where else would I expect on my first working day in search of an alternative for a shutdown underground line to run in an equally disoriented student whose father turns out to be one of the major coffee planters in Brazil? I would like to take the opportunity of this inaugural lecture to consider three approaches to my research, which looks at the coffee trade as a global as well as a local phenomenon. Why coffee? Because in one way or another, coffee shapes national and regional economies all over the world. It is exclusively produced in countries of the southern hemisphere, while consumption is dominated by industrialized countries in the north. Other than with sugar or cotton, there is no alternative product it can be replaced with. It has, since the late 19th century, been a commodity for mass consumption, and its availability has become an indicator of normal living conditions on the level of both society and the individual. And as such, it has become a political commodity in coffee-drinking nations such as Germany. At the same time, it has been central to nation-building and the development of infrastructures in the producing countries, in particular in Latin America. During its long history as consumer good, coffee has been endowed with a variety of contradictory meanings, such as luxury and normality, leisure and intense work, the public and the domestic sphere, a male or a female drink, an attribute of the older or the younger generations. An ever-growing amount of coffee is transported and marketed over long distances. The other choice I made was to look at one specific group of actors. Why do I want to study merchants? because it is only by analyzing this group, I believe, that we can fully understand the existence of global commodities and the mechanisms of their becoming global in the first place. Through their communication and interaction, merchants shape a universe in itself, filled with speculation, information, and transactions which take place in between and are often invisible concerning not only the commodity itself, but involving a large number and variety of people, currencies, contracts, social classes, nation states, cultural meanings, and images. However, in the historiography of commodity chains, the merchants are still a missing link. Finally, I want to add to the economic and social cultural approach that of political history by reflecting on the framework of the coffee trade under the conditions of a 20th century characterized by economic crisis, social change, and political ruptures, and in particular, 
by political violence and two world wars. And I hope to bring these different worlds, the global sphere, the merchant's place, and the political framework of the nation state together in order to understand the conditions and terms of trade in a broader sense, under which coffee, this modern commodity, was transformed along its chain and over time. To be able to answer these pretty large questions, I want to look at one small case, that is the coffee merchants in and from Hamburg, which represented at the time and until today the most important import place for Europe. I should perhaps warn you that my starting point is that of a social historian and moreover one interested in everyday practices and subjective experiences of concrete actors. Therefore, the worlds of international trade and, the coffee, and coffee were quite a challenge for me. But how else could I understand the meaning of the social if not by looking at its material, that is, economic foundation? So I decided to use my position as an outsider as a possible advantage. In what follows, I would like to elaborate, based on my case study, on these three approaches that I believe are necessary for a complex understanding of the coffee trade in the 20th century. And this is my first point. Coffee as a global commodity in the age of de- and re-globalization. In the coffee year of 2011-12, the coffee year beginning in October statistically, Over 144 million bags of 60 kilograms each containing green, that is, unroasted coffee beans were produced all over the world, most of them in Brazil, Vietnam, Indonesia, Colombia, and Ethiopia. Forecasts predict a rise of another 7 million bags for the current year. Actually, I wanted to bring an empty coffee bag um, just to, you know, give you a more better image, and it is an empty coffee bag that was the gift of my institute, you know, for London, and I think it was like a symbolic gift. It should be filled with the book, so I'm trying my best, but I left the coffee bag in my office. Um, Since the millennium, not only world production of coffee has gone up from over 117 million bags, but world consumption has also risen from almost 119 million to over 140 million bags. In the EU alone, more than 44 million bags of coffee were consumed last year, putting Europe at the top of the rankings, followed by the US with over 23 million bags. Altogether, world exports, consumption, and stocks, I mean all the existing coffee, made up for a total coffee distribution of more than 254 million bags in 2002-03, and over 280 million bags in 2011-12. Although coffee is not, as has been claimed, the second largest export commodity in trading value behind oil, there can be no doubt that coffee is of crucial importance for what we call a globalized economy. Produced in 46 countries on three continents, Latin America, Asia, and Africa, and consumed mainly in all of Europe, North America, and lately also Brazil, coffee appears to be the global commodity per se. 
On the eve of World War I, the basic structure of the coffee commodity chain was fully developed, as spelled out by William Harrison Ukers in his 1922 three-volume All About Coffee, in 24 steps from planting the seed for a coffee tree in a nursery to making the beverage at home. His first 12 steps take place in the producing country. They include the cultivating and pruning of the plants, the picking of the red cherry, the separation of the beans by washing or drying, their grading and packing, and eventually their transport to the sea. His last eight steps regard the preparation for consumption, a second phase of now industrial production, usually taking place in coffee-drinking countries. The blending and roasting, then buying and selling at retail, grinding and preparing the actual hot drink. The main changes since Ukas first published All About Coffee regard the larger role of the roasters. Grinding, packaging, as well as advertising were added, the more coffee became a branded commodity with competing trademarks. Between these two phases of production, we find what in the narrower sense of the word is the trade, buying and selling for export, transshipment, overseas, buying and selling at wholesale and shipment to the place of manufacture. What is striking in Uka's list is his relative disregard for the activities linked to the trade, in particular the overseas trade. While the agricultural sphere is spelled out in detail, buying and selling seem to be self-explanatory procedures not worth a closer look. This is also reflected in the book itself. Less than 10% of the 818 pages are devoted to the export-import part of the commodity chain. The neglect of overseas trade continues until today. Thus, a standard German database for economics, claiming to be the world's largest one, lists 955 mostly book titles under coffee. Among them are not more than 76 under the title Coffee Trade, 27 of which relate to international trade. And many of these are, however, legal texts concerning the international coffee agreements and terms of trade. Now, why should merchants be in the focus of my research? The history of globalization, or transnationalism, has become an unchallenged trend in historiography, even in Germany. But up to now, research, research has, I think with the exception of international labor and migration history, tended to focus on conceptual issues or macro-histories. Actually, the influential social historian of the so-called Bielefeld School, Jürgen Kocker, has recently expressed hopes that the shift towards global history would bring back big structures after all. Where it becomes more concrete, the obvious path to take is the history of commodity chains, as in Sidney Min's study on sugar or Sven Beckert's study on cotton, which has been announced for this year. The second more common avenue into the economic aspects of globalization are studies of companies which engaged in international market relations. A recent pioneering study by Christoph de Jung combines these two approaches and can make use of the rich archive of one merchant company, the Switzerland-based Volkart Brothers and its long-time successful uh, engagement in the global trade with cotton and coffee. 
The Jung's study centers around the merchant and his company as global actors and thus agents of globalization. Here, the market no longer appears as an abstract anonymous structure, but as an interactive one formed, used, and changed by individual and groups of actors. Our yet underdeveloped knowledge about all their activities will shed light on a sphere which until recently has mostly been ignored, condemned, or mystified. The study of coffee as a global commodity is an integral part of the history of globalization. To cut a long story short, its takeoff happened in the last third of the 19th century when large-scale growing of coffee, in particular in Latin America, secured the supply for a growing demand in industrializing and urbanizing regions such as Europe and North America. Technological developments improved the ways coffee was processed before and for shipping, as well as stored and prepared for consumption. Railways and steamships made transport quicker and easier, Telegraph cables allowed for a swift communication between continents. At the same time, the rather complicated technology of financing was being fully developed, the British pound sterling becoming the common currency for international trade, and the coffee exchanges allowed the trade in futures. While nationalism was on the rise, so was the ideology of free trade. And although most coffee-growing regions were no longer colonies, They depended on European and North American capital, expertise, and personnel. This golden age of globalization, golden at least from the perspective of Europe and the U.S., came to a rather sudden end with the outbreak of World War I and gave way to what has been called the age of deglobalization. Although scholars have rightly challenged this concept as Eurocentric or Eurocentric, It does apply to Europe and even more to Germany. Having started and lost two world wars, Germany's economic capacity with regard to foreign currency, import and export, as well as national and private income, suffered immensely until the so-called economic miracle in the West marked the beginning of a steady recovery and success well into the 1970s. From then on, we might talk about a process of re-globalization which gained speed in the 1990s. The ubiquitous statement that we live in a globalized world has become a mere triviality. Now, this narrative obviously needs some qualification when concentrating on one segment of world trade, such as coffee, as those figures for the import and consumption of coffee in Germany between 1913 and 2013 illustrate. This is now intense. It's one vexing thing about doing coffee is that sometimes it's counted as bags, then it's counted as tons, and sometimes it's counted as cups. So this is tons, okay? Now, while the general picture of de- and re-globalization is confirmed, the numbers also show that even in the first half of the 20th century, developments were contradictory and irregular. Coffee never vanished totally from the scene. Even in the last years of World War II, the Nazis made sure that there was coffee for the army and extra rations for the victims of air raids, the so-called Zittermocker, which is an untranslatable term, meaning 
either something like coffee to stop you trembling from fear or coffee to compensate you for having suffered from that fear. And in socialist East Germany, the ruling party went out of its way to ensure a basic supply of coffee, which was crucial for, for the legitimacy of the state, since for East Germans too, coffee was firmly established as a commodity, the availability of which signified normality instead of crisis and poverty. And as I was told by somebody from Hamburg, the GDR warehouses were filled with green coffee when the state imploded in 1989, and he knew that because he was the one to transport all that coffee to Hamburg. I would now like to go on to my second um, approach, which I called the merchant's space and place in the case of Hamburg. The notion of merchants as invisible actors in between is quite misleading. I therefore want to take a closer look at their place, which will shift the focus to my case study. Throughout the 20th century, actors in global trade have been grounded in local contexts, and the place they have occupied, in the sense of both physical and social place, has been crucial for their ability to move commodities, money, and people all over the globe. Every big port city imagines itself as the center of world trade, and Hamburg is no exception, as this map from the mid-1920s shows. Although the map illustrates the intensity of overseas trade as a whole, it also shows the main path of the coffee trade, especially from Latin America, then the re-export from Hamburg to Scandinavian countries and Denmark, uh, and even the share of Ethiopia. Um, in the late 19th century, uh, or I, I, I should perhaps give you one extra information. This, I mean, although I say that this, you know, also illustrates the coffee trade, um, coffee represented at the time, that is in 1925, indeed the largest single import commodity in trading value when it came, you know, um, uh, to, 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 the, to the Reichsmark. Um, but although it was the, the most important single commodity, it only held like 3.7% of the whole trade, um, import and export uh, from Hamburg, from and to Hamburg in 1925. In the late 19th century, Hamburg had joined the Customs and Tariff Union of the newly founded German Empire only under the, on the condition that its port was granted the status of a free trade zone, and it was here that importers, brokers, and agents established their offices close to the incoming ships, the storehouses, the newly founded coffee exchange, and very close to each other. This is a photograph from 1915. Um, this is the Kai Hafen, these are the sheds at the Zantorkai um, where the coffee is first unloaded, and those buildings are part of the huge, huge warehouse district built in the, at the end of the 19th century, and it's basically here in this region that all the coffee companies at the Kai, at the Freeport, found their home. The offices are here, and then just above the offices are the, is the warehouse part. 
The Zantokai became the home of around about 100 such merchants and a kind of international trademark for the Hamburg coffee business. At the time, the storehouse complex was within walking distance. At the same time, I'm sorry, the storehouse complex was within walking distance of the new town hall, which in turn was directly connected to the Chamber of Commerce and the Stock Exchange. This is a map uh, of the inner city of Hamburg, also from 1915. And what you can see here, here's the Zantorkai Hafen. We were kind of looking from the side of the harbor. Here's the Zantor uh, Kai. Here is the border to the Freeport. And here, which is just a kilometer, this complex is the town hall. It's the small one. And the larger building right attached to it is the um, main exchange and the chamber of commerce. Thus, the coffee merchants had a most convenient place. While they were quasi-extraterritorial, they were as close as could be to Hamburg's business and political center. In the area of the Freeport, the coffee merchants occupied a dense space where they could exchange information and coffee, visit, eat, drink, and gossip. Daily routines were shaped by morning calls to the coffee exchange, which was in this building complex, um, and by the visits paid by brokers and agents to the various importers. This enabled companies to closely cooperate and to closely observe their competitors. This is an image uh, of the Coffee Brokers Association um, from 1913. Uh, the brokers had um, a kind of subdivision of the larger association, and they, this group of gentlemen represents, let's say, a third of all the coffee merchants at the time. The coffee merchants were, in Max Weber's term, a stand, an estate. Contrasting this concept with that of class, Weber defined belonging to an estate as, quote, an effective claim to social esteem, typically founded on a style of life, empirical training, the corresponding forms of behavior, and occupational prestige, end of quote. According to Weber, state could be based on class position, but it was both more and less than class. The possession of money and entrepreneurial position were not enough to guarantee acceptance as part of an estate. On the other hand, Weber defined estate as incompatible with the free market since it tended to monopolize appropriations and thereby curb the individual's earning power. Despite Weber's kind of critical characterization of estate vis-a-vis -vis the market, the identification of the coffee merchants as an estate seems appropriate well into the 1950s. In the late 1880s, they had formed the Association of Companies Engaged in the Coffee Trade, that was their real name, Verein der am Kaffeehandel beteiligten Firmen, which regulated the terms of trade especially since the introduction of the trade in futures at the newly founded Hamburg Coffee Exchange. Two years later, the Brokers Association was formed as a subdivision of the Coffee Association. 
The Coffee Association held a local monopoly uh, of the international trade since only members had access to the coffee exchange and to crucial information about harvests, stocks, and prices. New membership was only possible by personal recommendation from within, and non-Hamburg-based companies and roasters all over the place were generally excluded. In addition, it formed the basis for an exclusive social club and a community of male individuals with obligations to each other and to the common cause, with its own code of honor based on a shared set of values and lifestyle. Their sense of distinction is best conceptualized with Elias and Bourdieu's concept of habitus, which helps to identify the coffee merchants as part of a larger community, the Hanseatic Honorable Merchant Estate. Habitus, as you know, refers to the internalized habits of thinking, feeling, and acting acquired through and in the group of social belonging. Bourdieu, much concerned with the process of its individual acquisition, linked habitus to the concept of capital. All four types of of capital he identifies, from economic to cultural, social and symbolic, worked nicely together for the group I examine, which provided these various forms of capital for its members who could make use of them to build and improve their status in the community. After all, this was not a community of equals. Importers at the K were the most powerful, with brokers and agents forming influential links between them. At the bottom of the rank were the so-called country firms, Länderfirmen, whose offices were located in the city and who specialized less in one commodity than in one country or region for that trade. For most of the period under consideration, around 200 Hamburg-based companies made up the diverse group of green coffee merchants. Altogether, I could identify over 600 such companies active in the business between 1914 and the 1970s, many of them existing throughout the whole period under consideration. Given the dramatic socio-economic changes over the course of the 20th century, one aspect was never openly challenged inside this group, the notion of honor and trust as the normative basis for the business and the community. To be honorable meant being led by the principles of solidity, honesty, fairness, and trustworthiness, a combination which was, at least in Hamburg, regarded as typically Hanseatic. Obviously, honor and trust were crucial factors in overseas trading, but this was also true for the local context, where cooperation and competition constantly overlapped and a fragile balance between various interests had to be considered. The price was not just good business, I meant the price to gain, that is, not the price to pay. But personal dignity and social esteem earned by a person's credit in the double sense of the word's meaning. Moreover, the practices of business were embedded in very distinct personal and social styles, which to the present day emphasize attitudes of discretion, which is very bad for an oral historian, and conspicuous modesty. However, It was by no means assumed that each individual would always follow those norms in their daily practice. A variety of instruments therefore served to ensure that they played by the rules. 
The most important basis for the functioning of the community, however, seems to have been the family firm, the common unit of coffee merchants to the present day. Now, what made the family such an efficient basis for the coffee trade? First, trust is much easier to establish since family firm members are bound by emotions and shared economic interests. They would act as agents in producing countries or at the international finance places. They would evaluate crops and negotiate contracts. On the local level, since membership in the coffee association was by company, the honor, trust, and credit of one firm depended on the behavior of each individual family member. For professional training, sons, coffee trade is a strictly patrilineal system. There are no women whatsoever in the coffee trade. Sons would often be exchanged between firms, the basis of an early and long-term acquaintance at the horizontal level of generation. During their travels abroad, they would be introduced to the families of business partners, socialize with the local elites, and bond with their peers to form early international connections. Generational socializing furthered family alliances through marriage, inside the merchant group, and with elite families, uh, preferably in Hamburg, at least into the first half of the 20th century. Thirdly, firm as family and family as firm represented a model for the whole business. Not just the core family, but the whole system it was embedded in worked together in an orchestrated attempt to enable informal habitus acquisition, much more probably than the formal apprenticeship each prospective successor went through. To be sure, this ideal image of the family as a framework for social and economic stability and mobilization had its flip sides. Fathers could and would deny their son's succession if they turned out to be total failures, and vice versa. Daughters could make mismatches. Friends could use their intimate knowledge of each other to compete more effectively later. But all in all, the family system, embedded in a broader system of kinship, friendship, and mutual support, was more effective than not well into the 1950s. Now, this happy account of the merchant group as family obviously needs to be read as an idealizing narrative, denying conflicts of interest, individual moral shortcomings, and more generally, the impact of history on this collective ideal self. Um, so in my last approach, politics, the nation state, and the rapid historical changes which shaped the 20th century will be considered. When the Hamburg Association of Companies engaged in the coffee trade had commemorated its 25th anniversary in 1911, this celebration was a sign of the overwhelming economic success of the trade as well as the unbounded self-confidence of its members and their excellent international contacts with all coffee-producing countries. Three years later, this world had changed radically. During World War I, coffee was no longer regarded as a vital commodity, and trade finally came to an end in Germany in 1917. For the first time, the state intervened directly in the coffee trade at both the international and national level. 
In order to not lose control entirely, merchants had to literally learn to deal with the state. And while the latter became a chief actor in the export-import and wholesale business, merchants offered themselves as experts to enable the state to fulfill its new role and thereby ensured their ongoing control over their business. These were lessons which would turn out to be useful well into the 1950s. But they changed the outlook, the daily routines, as well as the more strategic practices in the trade. Under the conditions of war and economic crisis, the association became the chief lobbyist for coffee vis-a-vis the state. Free trade was replaced by a guaranteed quota for coffee which was broken down into fixed portions or shares uh, for each member by the board of the association. In this way, the existing economic balance in the trade was maintained or in Weber's characterization of a state, the individual's earning power was curbed. And And while the sense of community was strengthened, facing the state as a common counterpart, new competition arose under conditions of scarcity, and more than one member tried to increase his share by individually lobbying with state officials. At the same time, World War I had cut off international relations, both with the so-called origin, which is the kind of poetic expression for producing countries, and with important financial partners in the city of London. State intervention continued with the Versailles Treaty restricting the number of cargo vessels, forcing asymmetric trade agreements on Germany and demanding huge sums as reparations, which led to a dramatic shortage of foreign currency. But in 1925, the Hamburg Coffee Exchange reopened, consumption rose in Germany, In 1931, however, the banking crisis, as the result of the Great Depression, um, foreign trade was again restricted. Still, imports were increasing. The government, trying to avoid a coffee crisis, applied the rules for restrictions rather generously to the trade. It helped that the Hamburg merchants, meanwhile, had established very good personal relations with state officials, as they would do with every important business partner. And finally, they could always rely on the local political elites who were closely entangled with the merchant class through marriage, friendship, business, and a shared sense of pride in their wealthy and um, uh, and liberal city. While merchants themselves tended to be on the liberal or conservative liberal side politically, they had not, nor did they have to, felt threatened by the social democrats taking over the government after the November Revolution. In the early 1930s, the coffee trade was confident, therefore, that it could deal with the Nazis in the same way, offer to cooperate, convince them of the importance for coffee, of coffee for national wealth and consumer satisfaction, and stay out of party politics altogether. But these expectations were only partly fulfilled. While the Nazis did support the import of coffee, they attacked the independence of the coffee association. Only by its self-Nazification, including the dissolution of all participatory elements, the nomination of NSDAP members as leaders, and not least, the exclusion of their Jewish members, could the formal existence of the association be secured. 
in the hope of continuing its informal self-government based on its tradition of community, trust, and honor, the association was willing to pay a price which eventually meant betraying these very principles. In 1938, no Jewish company had survived, although some of them kept formal membership until 1939, but that applied only to those Jewish companies where the owners, meanwhile, were in America or Great Britain. But they were never struck out of the list. The same year showed, that is the same year, that is 1938, showed the highest imports and profits ever for the Hamburg trade. After September 1939, which, other than in 1914, put an immediate end to the trade, some merchants shifted to other colonial products, offered their services to the city government, and Nazi party overdrafted. One group, 30 of whom I could identify by name, got involved in the economic exploitation of the occupied territories in the East, managing former Jewish companies or working for the so-called Handelszentrale Ost, an agency of the Ostministerium to organize the confiscation of agrarian and other food products for the German army and to market the surplus for the German Reich. And by doing so, they found themselves in the midst of the genocide against the Jewish population, in particular in the Ukraine, where they arrived in the fall of 1941, when most of the you know, early massacres were done. And just in brackets, I do have letters from some of these coffee merchants who were written one day after one of the major uh, massacres in Rovno, Ukraine. Not mentioning the massacre, obviously. At the end of 1944, these pioneers in the East, as they were proudly labeled by the coffee merchants at the Zandturkai, hastily left for Hamburg, where, meanwhile, the port and the center of the coffee trade had been partly destroyed by air raids. Uh, This is not the exact perspective of the photograph um, from 1915, but you can see pretty much what that part looked like. Not fully aware of the totality of their defeat, the coffee merchants awaited the occupying power with their usual confidence. But coffee was not on the priority list of the British, who were also reluctant to embrace the Hamburg merchant elite, despite the latter's outspoken anglophilia. The Western Allies controlled German international trade through their joint export-import agency and reserved these rights until 1952. In 1948, however, a German state agency, later attached to the Ministry of Economics and cooperating closely with the Hamburg-based coffee association, was already established. It was here in Bonn that merchants had to apply for foreign currency to buy coffee based, as before, on their share of imports in the last year of peace, which, by the way, meant that Jewish companies coming back almost never would would get a share because at the time they didn't have any share in the trade anymore. The coffee merchants were back on the terrain familiar to them since 1916, including some of the personnel they had to deal with. It was only in 1955 that all restrictions were abundant and under the conditions of the incipient economic miracle the coffee trade was free at last, 
with affairs finally back to the good old days. Um, and this photograph is from a private um, album. Um, the lady below is the wife of the um, uh, chair of the Coffee Association, and the, photo, um, the photos were given to me by her daughter-in-law. And that's in 1953. There were two major changes, however. One concerned the Iron Curtain and the fact that Hamburg was cut off from its traditional hinterland, which, as you can see from this map of the mid-1920s, um, had been mainly Germany's east and south, as well as central Europe. Uh, the red circles... Um, refer to um, railroads, and the blue circles refer to rivers. Um, and you can see that the, large, the larger the circle, the more the direction is towards southeast. While the Rhine area, uh, which is pretty um, you know, thin, was, in, I'm talking about coffee here, it was mostly, um, uh, mostly dealt with Holland, uh, to the uh, dismay of Hamburg people, obviously. That's why they hated the Rhineland roasters. Secondly, the world market uh, was now dominated by the USA, with New York as the new center for the international coffee trade and the US dollar now the dominant trading currency. With consumer demand on the rise, the few Hamburg firms expanded and changed into multinational companies whose global scope no longer relied on a local basis. The old paradigm of community was no longer attractive for those who succeeded in this game on the new world market. Their takeoff was accompanied and supported by a concentration process in the roasting business and the emergence of large supermarket chains. The majority of the traditional smaller companies who had formed the core of the association were unable to compete under these circumstances. Today, there is actually only one significant company left in Hamburg, the already mentioned Neumann Coffee Group, which controls around 20% of the world trade in green coffee. The association of companies engaged in the coffee trade still exists with a small membership of veterans, very old, even by the standards of the trade, where 60-year-olds could easily still count as junior. Um, I'm coming to my conclusion. The three approaches I have presented in my talk are obviously interwoven narratives which have to be integrated for the history I want to write. How exactly this will be done, I cannot demonstrate here, not least because of time constraints. But let me, by way of conclusion, give some examples of how these levels might be linked. First, there is the paradoxical effect of the years of crisis and violence in the first half of the 20th century, that is times of extreme change, which led to a conservation of the business in its basic composition and economic structure. Because access to the market at times of economic and currency crisis was based on a company's share in the trade at a point in the past regarded as normal, which meant 1913 or 1938. Despite all the rhetoric of free trade, when the state finally retreated from the market, um, this meant the end of many individual businesses and the end of the Hamburg coffee business as 
community. That's one example. Secondly, the ahistorical self-representation of the business needs to be questioned. I'm showing you this photograph again. Um, this was done for the 25th anniversary of the Brokers Association, and you can see that the brokers still look pretty much like former schoolmates of the class of 1888 when they were founded. And it, it, the photo was taken in the coffee exchange, and you can see how cozy it is. I mean, it's, it looks really, you know, gemütlich in a way. Um, like they're cuddling together. Now, this is a photograph taken in 1928, and it's a larger group now. We're all, always the, bro the brokers. This is not the whole community. It's just the, um, the brokers were the only ones who, you know, wanted to be photographed. So we have to, you know, put up with them. Um, a larger group had moved to the main exchange in Hamburg, closer to the Rathaus, for a more representative photo. Um, now... This photograph claims to have been taken in 1938, and I had a longer conversation with one of the veterans who proudly showed me one of the Jewish members still on the photo until I realized that this, is the, that this photo is actually the one of 1928. Yeah. And they cut off, you know, the photographer, who was Max Hirsch, um, and the, the, the caption says the Hamburg Coffee Brokers on their 50th anniversary in 1938. So this is not a photograph of 1938, but I wanted to show it to you anyway. Um, here we have in 1963, we can see a reduced number in the 1950s environment, no longer posing in the earlier solemn manner, and they're posing in the new, newly built um, coffee exchange. And finally, in 1988, their number is again halved, now in color, and most of these people are no longer active in the business anyway. What we do not see on these pictures, however, or not enough, is the generational changeover in those 100 years that are covered by the photographs. And I just want to give you a very you know, quick and preliminary sketch of those generations. The founders of the association had been men of the late 19th century and often members of the old Hamburg patrician families. Those who entered the business in the 1920s were, shaped, were younger and were shaped by the constraints of history and obsessed with controlling its effects. It was this generation, the second generation, so to speak, um, which prepared for the rise of individual companies above the level of the estate in the second post-war period. And their sons, most of them born in the late um, 1920s or 30s and trained in the 1950s, fought for economic survival under the circumstances of increased competition with a few winners and many losers. Now, my third example um, of how you know those different levels work together um, deals with the simultaneity and the otherness of coffee worlds that need to be dealt with in my project. Now the easiest way is to follow the actors into those different worlds. For most of the period under consideration, designated successors would travel at least once to a country of origin and or to one of the international financial places. In 1902, young Alphonse Hansen published a detailed 
travel account of his journey to the coffee countries of the world. And he, he traveled all coffee countries in the world, and it took him two years. Uh, and he had a good time. Um, on this two-year trip, he had mostly met and stayed with German nationals who lived and worked in almost every coffee place in the world, be it as planters or agents or you know, family members. But with international contacts being established once, one could effectively engage in international trade without ever leaving Hamburg. A 10-minute walk to the Hamburg Chamber of Commerce, a visit from a Latin American consul, a telex to one's house bank in the city of London, or turning on the office computer at the opening time of the New York Stock Exchange might suffice. The universe of these actors was and is filled with these very often virtual worlds in which they operate. But on the level of lived experience, those worlds um, very often are totally separated from each other, obviously. Uh, what does the Hamburg merchant know about a small farmer in Costa Rica or Ethiopia? And what, was this farmer, what does this farmer know about the students in a Starbucks branch on King's Way? And yet, there seems to be a strong wish to imagine these other worlds. Since the mid-1950s, official photographs were taken in front of a window. You see the glass window in the back? Yep. Um, since the mid-1950s, official photographs were uh, taken um, in front of this um, uh, front-face window in the newly built coffee exchange, and here is the window itself. Um, look at this church-like window, which turns the trading floor into a sacred place and evokes all the delights of coffee, the endless horizon of the coffee fields, the redness of the cherry, the happy women with their naked feet and their colorful clothes, in full contrast to the male black and gray suited ambience of the humble coffee exchange. The longing for the imagined origin is an integral part of the many real worlds of coffee where even the product itself loses its visible presence. In the brand new warehouse building of the Neumann Coffee Group, coffee is never seen. It arrives in containers from which it is directly sucked out by an exhauster and distributed by computers into various pipes, preparing the mixture for designated customers. When you are inside the building, you can hear the coffee beans rush through these pipes, and there is a faint smell of fibers that somehow make it into the air. But that is another story. Thank you. <laughs>